Well, we find ourselves in the middle of a manhunt today in 1 Kings chapter 17. The middle of a manhunt. Elijah, the prophet, is running for his life from an infuriated King Ahab of Israel. An infuriated King Ahab who wants to silence him and end him. And we'll find out a little bit why in a second. Um, but a little bit about King Ahab. King Ahab, as all those who are taking the Old Testament uh, class know, was by far the worst prophet in Israel. Israel being the ten northern tribes of the original ten tribes of Israel. Um, this was all about 850 years before Jesus Christ. God had issued the law through Moses that Israel was supposed to live by to keep their covenant. Um, one of them being not to marry foreign wives because if you did so, then they could possibly draw your heart away from worshiping the Lord God of Israel only. And of course, what does Ahab do? He marries the infamous Jezebel of Sidon. And she draws his heart away, and they worship the Baals. Ahab made Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, look like the Las Vegas Strip, right? With how many idols and temples and, uh, and altars that he had set up in there. He was acting like a fool like a biblical fool. Do you know what a biblical fool is compared to what we probably think of as a fool? A biblical fool is someone who has no fear of God, no regard at all. And here comes God with his prophet Elijah. What do you think God does to people who are living apart from him, his people that are, that are living in sin, living away from him, not worshiping him only? He sends prophets. He sends his word. He talks to them. He has a conversation. But it's not necessarily one that you want to be a part of. And so he sends Elijah. And Elijah speaks the curse uh, to Ahab, to the kingdom of Israel, that there will be a drought because of all of this idolatry, all of this sin. And of course, we all know this. When we hear what we don't want to hear, we think, well, if we just sort of silence the messenger, maybe it'll go away. And so that's why Elijah is on the run. Because Ahab has literally gone to every single surrounding kingdom and said, have you seen Elijah? Swear to it. He made every single king take an oath that they had not seen Elijah. He wanted him dead. Because... Elijah had spoken this curse from God of drought over the land of Israel because of, their, um, because of their idolatry, because of their sin. And so that's sort of the, the scene, the, the, the background uh, of this passage. Just before this, um, Elijah was literally at a brook and God was feeding him by birds, by ravens. Um, I mean, that's how desperate this had been. And so we pick up the story with Elijah on the run, and he's really between safe houses. Um, and the question is, where is God going to take this prophet next? 
And so if you have your Bibles, let's open to 1 Kings chapter 17 and see where God leads his prophet Elijah. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And she was going to bring it. And he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Now, friends, what might escape us uh, is that this passage was an absolute indictment against the people of Israel. This is how Jesus interprets the text, at least in Luke chapter 4, that, you know, Elijah could have gone maybe to an Israelite's house. There were many widows in Israel. But the first people probably reading this were Hebrews, and they, you know, would have been absolutely blush with shame that Elijah couldn't go to any homes in Israel but had to go to Sidon, to a widow of Zarephath. That the Israelites were so hard-hearted towards the word of God that they, had to, they would have completely rejected him and probably sought to do what Ahab had done, maybe turn him in. And so he has to go to Zarephath and this widow, in, which is in Phoenicia, just north of Israel, right? And we're going to see this whole entire story really um, be an amazing example of how God provides for his prophet and how faith comes from very unlikely places. But all of this is standing sort of in an indictment way of Israel, that you, just like Jesus, would be rejected from his own hometown. So the Israelites would not receive one of their own prophets. And that's sort of the, the nature of being a prophet, isn't it? If you stand up for the word of God, you might be put out. <laughs> you might be put out, right? The fact that we're all here in this room as Anglicans in America says that, doesn't it? We know this intimately. Um, but the Lord provides, does he not? The Lord provides, does he not? Sure, we might be put out if we stand up for the word of God in our workplaces, in our, in our uh, families, in our, uh, but really this context was the church, the people of God. He went to the people of God and spoke these words and he was put out, right? <laughs> but the Lord provides, does he not? You know, in boot camp, um, Navy boot camp, uh, I've had the pleasure of going to boot camp and officer school, which is just great. Um, but in Navy boot camp, whenever you would screw up, the RDCs would come by and say, we have a teachable moment. 
and they would then broadcast how you messed up to the whole, uh, the whole ship, these little divisions we had, and they would you know, say to everybody just how uh, Seaman Watts screwed this up and how we could all learn from this. Well, this is sort of one of those ways. God is showing that, man, Israel, if you potentially stand up in your faith, we're seeing how the Lord's going to provide for them. This is a teachable moment. And so he sends them. He just fed them with a bird, for goodness sakes. And now he's sending them to a widow in Zarephath. And the ask is not a light one, is it? The ask is death. What does he ask? In the middle of a drought for water. Amazingly, she goes and gets it. And then on the way, oh, by the way, a morsel of bread. Actually, that little morsel was saved for me and my son. We're going to eat it, and then we're going to die. That's like asking your bedside person next to you, you know, in the hospital, hey, do you really need that IV drip? Because I could really use one right about now. Um, and oh, oh. Those life-saving medications, hand them over as well. You know, I mean, this is, this is a big ask. And the Lord really does ask for sacrifice. And it cuts deep. It cuts so deep to the thing we think we can't even live without. That is always the ask. That we would open-handedly give the thing that we cannot give, we do not think we can live without. Friends, the fate of faith seems like death. The fate of faith seems like death, does it not? It seems like death. Well, let's continue the story. Verses 13 through 14. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. You know, the beauty of being a prophet isn't just that you get to communicate the curses of God, right? That's what everyone thinks when they think of prophet, the, the enforcers of the covenant. But they're also the reminders of the promises. We're also the reminders of life to people. And he communicates the promise of life to this woman. And so here we have in one hand, sacrificial death, and on the other hand, we've got the promise of life. And what lies in between? Faith. Faith. And that's always how it is. It is always how it is. Faith and probably a whole lot of fear. <laughs> you know, in the Old Testament course that... Um, 
understanding the Old Testament that we're doing, I was in there last week, and Janice and I were having a conversation about idols, idol worship. What, why would they worship idols? Why do you think people worship idols? Because we were just so perplexed why they kept worshiping idols. Why are these northern kings always going back, always going back to worshiping these idols? And I mean, these people were living almost moment by moment, day by day, week by week. If you had two changes of clothes, you were like so wealthy. I mean, they were like, they had the mindset that there could be a drought at any moment. And, and these gods, especially Baal, the god of fertility, thunder, and rain, would have been a great god to worship, right? In an agricultural setting where there could be a famine at any moment. And so there's this fear. There's this fear-driven clinging to something that we can potentially, you know, manipulate into doing what we want for us. And isn't that the same thing that we face in our daily lives? That there's this often fear of this, this scarcity or perceived scarcity, this fear that, oh, even down to our very basic needs of maybe even being known or maybe even being uh, worthy, and so we, we gobble up a lot of money to make us feel like I've made it in life, and, and money might become an idol, or status, or accolades, or, or a, lot, a large family will then make it seem like I've made it in life. I know when I'm scrolling through my Instagram and I'm seeing every person I graduated from college fun with their white picket in the north of Virginia, 2.5 kids and a dog, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's coming up in me. It's coming up in me. Wow, have I made it yet? Have I not? You know, and so, so maybe I should have taken that, you know, job after my deployment where I was, could be selling uh, software to companies and have that white picket myself in Northern Virginia by now or whatever. And, and, and you just see how idols quickly seep their way into our souls, but very subtly as well. And actually retract that slowly, um, seep our way into our souls. But God is calling us away from those things which we think offer life, right? Something that we feel like we can't live without, but always promises life. So yes, provide the morsel of bread and the water that might be your last that might be your last meal on earth. But I'm actually gonna provide endless supply of food. He cuts to the very thing we can't live without only to promise us infinitely more than we can ever ask or imagine. But in between stands faith. In In between stands faith. That is if the Lord God is truly who he says he is. If his word can be trusted, right? And so, the fate of faith is death, or is it? Is the fate of faith life? Let's follow the feet of this nameless widow and find out. Verse 15 through 16. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her whole household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. 
according to the word the Lord, the word of the Lord that he had spoken by Elijah. What an absolutely remarkable miracle. I, I was trying to picture this this week. So they just kept taking this flower out and it, what it just automatically replenishes. This oil just never ends. What, I mean, can you imagine this? Especially in their context, this was amazing. This was mind-blowing. Unheard of. Endless flower, endless oil. How is this happening it's happening just like the Lord God said it would, right? His word is true. It is efficacious. It is powerful. It is effective. It always accomplishes its purpose. And this woman eats, her son eats, but did you catch this? And her whole household, even more than she could ask or imagine. She would even asked for her household and, and, and God gave it to her. Yet the greatest gift of all, of course, wasn't the bread, right? The greatest gift of all wasn't the oil. The greatest gift of all wasn't even a prophet who usually only talks to kings visiting this widow. The greatest gift of all, of course, for her, was the gift of faith. It's always a gift of faith. It's always, God is always trying to woo us into trusting him more. Just like we want to lose weight, so we go on a diet and we think when we lose all this weight, we've arrived when really the true reward is the fact that you become a more disciplined person and that you will now be able to control whatever your appetites desire. And the weight off is great, but, but the real reward is your discipline that you've become. So likewise, the Lord is always trying to, yes, ask us to give up exactly what we think we can't live without so that he might lead us into more than we could ever ask or imagine, and in doing so, make us a people of faith in him and him alone. She received the gift of faith. I love this testimony. This is, and, and faith is often silent, isn't it? There's no talk back. She just, and there was no talk back with Elijah, right? Go to Zarephath. Do we hear anything? No, right? What do we hear? So he rose and went with her. And she went and did. No talk back. It's the same with, real quick, the same when um, the angel appeared to Joseph. He just did it with Mary. Anyway, back to this. Um, so she just arose and went. That is an amazing testimony. <laughs> That's an amazing testimony. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. Verse 15, and she went and did as Elijah said. She went and did as Elijah said. I love that testimony. And she went and did, just as his prophet said. And so I want to ask, Maybe what could be your faith testimony this week? What could be your little, and he went and did, and she went and did? Maybe it's something that could sound like this. And he went and started listening to his wife, actually listening to her. And she 
curbed her criticisms into compliments. And they had a joyous marriage that they haven't had since year one of marriage. Maybe. Maybe. And he went and started tithing for the first time in his whole entire life. And finally, this neurotic control over his money washed away. And he found peace with his finances. And she went and finally called her Christian friend and had the conversation she's been putting off for years. And laying all that wreckage of guilt and shame in her past, she finally found rest in her Savior, Jesus. Not only rest, but purpose for her life. And she went and listened to that friend, that, that girl in school that nobody likes to talk to, and just gave her 15 minutes of her time before she had to get in the car and go away. And 10 years later, this friend is the only friend she still talks to from high school. Her one and only true friend, really. All the other popular girls fell away. And he went, now as a grown man, after many years of hurt, and after Thanksgiving meal, talked to his father and mother and just confessed, confessed how he's ignored them, showed no honor to them, and they reconciled as a family and experienced deeper, deeper levels of intimacy as a family that they had never had before. And he went, I could go on. And he went and started a Bible study in his unit in the Navy. And only two guys showed up. But those two guys shared the gospel with 30, you know? And they came to Christ. We could go on. I'll tell you mine. And he was living the veneer of a Christian life, but really just doing as he pleased his whole youth, giving lip service to God but living by his own rules until he started breaking his own rules and realized how much of a hypocrite he really was. And on a college dorm room floor at the age of 19, he broke down and said, Jesus, if you'll take me, I'm yours, and he did. And in that moment, everything, everything changed. Fear not. The fate of faith, for it is life in the Lord. Fear not the fate of faith, friends, for it is life in the Lord. One final note. You know, the whole nation of Israel... Just picture what's going on. The whole nation of Israel is starving and dying because of this drought, right? Be because of this drought due to the fact that they are worshiping the God of fertility and rain. They're all dying of drought because they're worshiping the God of rain. Okay? And so what does God do? Right under the capital city of this God of rain's nose, he sends his prophet. Right where Jezebel is from, by the way, Sidon. And he doesn't send the prophet to the queen. He sends to a widow. 
the absolute lowest of the low on the social scale. <laughs> and so this, this prophet and this widow and her whole household are enjoying this never-ending miraculous meal while everyone else is starving right underneath the nose of the capital city, the God of Rain. Who's really God? Baal or the Lord of Israel? Do you see what's happening? Who's really God? Baal or the Lord of Israel? The Roman instrument, which was the symbol of punishment, shame, and repression, the cross, gets turned into the symbol of life and liberty and peace. The very city that silenced and killed all the prophets that were sent to Jerusalem becomes the launching pad for the apostles to spread the gospel to the whole entire world. Who's really God? Who's really God? This text, this text asked the ancient Israelites and us today, who's really God in your life? Baal or the Lord of Israel? It asks us today, who's really God in our life? Are we clinging to worthless idols? Or are we holding fast to Yahweh who would covenant himself to us and lead us into promises and a future that we can't even ask or imagine? And oh, by the way, would feed us every time we come Sunday to the never-ending meal of the table with his very own flesh and blood that he poured out and broke for us for the forgiveness of sins. Who's really God? Who's really God? Fear not the fate of faith, for it is life in our Lord Jesus Christ. Fear not the fate of faith, for it is life in the Lord Jesus Christ.